No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all the things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. From the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 15. Welcome to Epigraph. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And we're going to pick up on our the last conversation that we had, which was about what would, what would one-way friendships one-way friendships the 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 possibility of them and the possible value of them and the possible uh pathology of them yeah <laughs> and so we we started last week talking about one-way relationships more broadly and the idea there with one-way relationships was that one person is far more aware of the relationship than the other. The other person might not know about it at all, right? Right, they might be dead, in which <laughs> yeah, case... They might be dead. <laughs> they might be... One of the things you brought up that I thought was really interesting was the idea of politicians in our representative system. And so yes, it might be yeah. one person with several million or more constituents. Yes, yeah. Yes, I know. And, and so there's, there's a lot. We, we talked somewhat, I think, about the, the asymmetry of those things. Um, that you know, I know way more about the person than they do about me. There's there's a necessary aspect to that in hierarchy. Um, so you, when you look up, you see the people in the hierarchy above you. But generally, it's much harder for someone to look down from the hierarchy and looking look at you again with politicians. How many elected representatives do I have? I could learn all their names. How many constituents does those elected representatives have? Far more than they could ever even know their names, much less you know know what they think about political issues, etc. So. We talked about that. And then another big point that we talked about was um, the idea of the when those one-way relationships start to take the place of what should be reciprocal relationships. Mm-hmm. So in terms of sort of examining possible pathologies, that that would be one. And there we talked a lot about um, the sort of the, 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 modern, the modern instantiation of, of celebrity, particularly things like influencers, where they're, there's this sort of daily... Um, way to engage with people and then it starts to take on this sort of quasi this simulacra of a, of a reciprocal relationship mm-hmm. maybe in a way that you know a dead author whose corpus is fin- whose corpus is finished <laughs> um who's written who's, who's, who's yes who's done writing their corpus is also finished and in the ground but or you know um <laughs> but their their corpus they're 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 done writing and so you can't you don't feel like you're getting sort of this you might get fresh insight, but you're not getting fresh material from them. There doesn't, you don't get that appearance of, Hey, I'm having this long distance relationship with someone who also knows me. Mm-hmm. And so, so that, that, that becomes particularly, um, problematic. Although there's, you know, there's other examples that you raised, I think of the Greek, the Greek archeologist who, Heinrich uh, Schliemann. Yeah. Who, who just, he, he started to have a very one way relationship with ancient Greece where he, um, you know, rewrote his life around that and, you know, it it wasn't it wasn't it was very much a you know it's a dead thing his you know Greece isn't something that he's a part of really well having something like that doesn't make you or having that kind of relationship with a dead thing doesn't make you immune from it becoming pathological it just makes it far less likely far I less think. likely that's right yes a- ab- absolutely there's and again with a lot of these things I think it's more important to talk about maybe the tendencies that things produce rather than the inherent outcome. Um, so, but then we talked a little bit at the end then about, well, what does this mean about, say, Christ? And so it's appropriate that this, this episode starts with um, a passage from the Gospel of St. John. 
So I think you had an idea about where you might want to start going from here. Well, a couple things. Because, so when you, when you raised that at the end of last episode, you know, I started thinking about that. And you suggested that that is an instance of a one-way relationship that we're supposed to have. But I would put it to you that there, actually the illusion for us is mm. that it's one way. Okay, interesting. Yes. That's a great point. So, so it's, it is, let's say the channels of communication that we're used to in an interpersonal relationship are different. And so it can produce the appearance of a one-way relationship. Mm-hmm. So... That's a great point. That's a great point. Now. Okay, but actually. <laughs> Sorry, uh, so I have a say, lot of very controversial ch- things <laughs> I could do. <laughs> I and I'm not sure I want to open any of those cans of worms right now. So, so you well, said channels of communication. So yeah. let me just tie in the other thing that I was thinking about with that verse from John. Which okay. is that in that verse, Christ in some way ties friendship to communication. He yes, says, yes. no, I call you friends now because I have told you these things. Which he contrasts to a different hierarchical, very hierarchical relationship mm-hmm. of master and slave. And he says the distinguishing feature between the relationship he now has with the apostles is that he is, well, so, so it's communication as a form of opening oneself up, right? He says, now I've, now I've shown you, right? You know, right. you know what I know. It's a different kind of communication. Obviously, there's still communication with a slave. Yeah. You give orders to a slave, but you don't, you don't explain yourself so to do you, a slave. So then to go back to, to go back to um, Alan Jacobs and Breaking Bread with the Dead, do you think that adds legitimacy to, to some kind of real friendship with dead writers? Because they do, you know, not all of them, but many of them really do open themselves up to you in a, in a non-reciprocal way. But they're saying, look, here, here's what I think about the world. Here's, I'm not hiding things from you. I'm not trying to deceive you. you sort of, you know, here's my heart. Yeah. Here's my mind. What do you think of it? It's an interesting question with an, with an author or... I think you could say even with someone like a, a YouTube influencer now, because yeah. even though they aren't aware of the individuals who are going to be receiving that, right. they are collectively aware of their audience. So interesting. They are yeah, actually yeah, yeah. deliberately giving you those things. They just don't know that it is you individually that they're giving. Oh, that's that real. That that puts a very interesting spend on on conceiving of parasocial relationships it well it makes me think of some really some rather scything comment about i think it was the um the lifelessness of a character in the twilight movies i think and the joke was well that's intentional because that way everyone can be that girl right Mm. she's a nobody why is she no one so everyone can project themselves into her place and there's something similar of that where it's not exactly that say these these characters are these people, they're not characters, well, they're characters also, but these people are not, it's not that they're interacting with no one. They're sort mm-hmm. of acting with, they're interacting with the viewer, maybe capital V viewer, and then you as an individual get to like play that out almost. You get to, mm-hmm. you get, now, I, I know that, the, and, and again, this is to go back to sort of those more pathological aspects of it. What's weird is that, L, it, it, so, so I've, I've, I've heard, and I couldn't back this up, but I've heard that one of the 
common um, sort of early stages of schizophrenia is that you start like seeing like personal directed meaning in things that are impersonal. So you'll like you'll be watching television on the news and you're like, that was for me. Mm. Like that mm. that news reporter was speaking to me. And it has to do with like your ability to distinguish what's meaningful, like how things are meaningful mm-hmm. is out of whack. But it it strikes me that it's a lot harder to pick up say an old book and think oh my goodness he was writing to me like he actually knew who I was and was writing to me now whereas with these other forms of communication it's a lot easier to let's say lose grip on that a little bit and sort mm-hmm. of start to walk into that wow this is really for me like you were speaking to me so the question then becomes almost what could the communicator have known Yes. So yeah. as soon as the person is yes. dead, you in you know unless you go into some really weird territory, or you're talking about like the Old Testament prophets, then or the resurrection in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you're in a zone where you just know. I know that in no way did Jane Austen foresee me. Yeah. And yeah. so, that is easier to bear in mind than you know being a parson's daughter in England contemporary with Jane Austen and feeling like she, you know, obviously she wasn't writing to you, but she could have been writing to a group that she was picturing that actually included someone like you. Yeah. That's, that is, it's a very strange way of thinking about it. First, I mean, one of the things that, and I don't know if I could draw out the connection there, but something that, that immediately comes to my mind is the, the idea of the Hindu avatars. And I'm not really sure why, it almost feels like... Can you explain? Yeah, so the avatars are where the gods... It basically is these various embodiments of the gods. Ah, and so okay, you would... Yes. Well, this is sort of what I think it is. I think this may be why I'm, I'm seeing that, because in Hindu religious texts, people would meet someone who, oh, you're an avatar of this particular god of the Hindu pantheon. And it's this, it's this way in which, like, this embodied person stands in for all the gods mm-hmm. in some sense. So you, like, meet with the gods in this person... I think what what strikes me there is this sort of same sort of relationship. We have this multitude embodied in the individual view, the the viewer that this person is you know speaking to, and then we sort of like put ourselves into that. It becomes the viewer becomes like an our avatar in a sense. I don't know if that's a very helpful way of framing it, but it because you're you're almost acting out a relation it's it's like you're like play acting a relationship with a person does that make sense it seems like it's the inverse <laughs> though okay maybe the, this is better maybe, maybe this a, is the avatar is yeah. an, almost yeah. an entryway into something far larger <laughs> but I, I have when a, you're yeah. taking something personally you're you're funneling it that's true it's actually what it's reminding me of now is the it, there's I don't do, I don't know if you remember this any of the scenes in 1984 not 1984 Fahrenheit 451 the other dystopia with a, a long number in it <laughs> um, where his wife is sitting in the like basically it's like a VR room so it's these you know floor to ceiling televisions and she's uh-huh. always badgering him can we replace another wall and the idea is at some point all four walls are going to be replaced with the telescreens and then she'll just be gone forever yeah but they in in those in 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 his story, um, in Bradbury's story, they send out the scripts on paper of these sitcoms, these obnoxious family sitcoms. And so because the per- viewer has the script, there are places in it where the characters that, are, that have been filmed turn towards the camera and say, what do you think, Marjorie? And then you're supposed to, as the viewer, you're supposed to read 
And I can't remember if there's some, you know, hand-wavy technology there that, like, changes, puts your name in there. But the idea is the whole thing is scripted. Mm-hmm. But then you have the script with you, and so then you you get to say the line, and so it fits into the whole conversation that they pre-recorded, and all of a sudden you feel like you're part of the television. And so it becomes this bizarre performative thing where no one's watching. You're There's, like, a performative... So that, that, I mean, that's a very cynical way of looking at those relationships, but it's, it, it is sort of similar. It's like, you have to sort of, you act out, you act out like you're the part of a, well, and this is, and then it, it gets really weird when, you know, in the last two years, a lot of our relationships moved to over the screen because now another person looking at a screen, talking to you, well, that's exactly the same as when I, it, when I, you know, zoom my friend, this is the same kind of sensory experience so if I sit here and listen to this person, it's in some way just the same as if I'm having a video call with my friend and I just don't say anything. I'm just listening the whole time, which is very strange. Like it. But uh, that provides actually a really interesting parallel, I think, to the Fahrenheit 451 situation in that it really is the reality of whether the other person is paying attention and aware of you that makes the difference. Because there's nothing wrong with sitting in a room with people and, you know, reading out a script as part of, as as part of what you're doing. I've I've sat with my parents and my sister, well, your parents and your sister too. And me. (laughs) And (laughs) what Shakespeare. No, you weren't there. Okay. And we were reading Twelfth Night over Christmas. Yeah, yeah. And that is... Interesting. Meaningful. Okay. Yes. It isn't the scriptedness. It's not the scriptedness. It is that the other people are just... They are pre-creating an opportunity of which they will have no awareness. They will have no awareness. So, okay, so... so clearly, from you. Uh, clearly, attention is important here. Yes. And so, which, you know, makes my, makes my suggestion putting forward uh, our, our relationship with Christ being one that's analogous to that is being obviously completely the opposite of what's true, right? So you have an all-knowing omnipotent God. It's like, if there's an asymmetry of attention, it's entirely on our fault. On our side. On our side, right? We could not possibly receive more attention than than the all-knowing one gives. And so that, so there's, there, right, there's at least two things. There's attention and the communication, and you can... Those are actually not very tightly coupled, or at least verbal communication. Verbal communication and attention are not. Wow! Now this is starting to okay, make so me think of all sorts of other things. Yeah. Because, because well, once you um, technology very broadly, very broadly, yeah. As soon as you you decouple attention and communication, yeah. when you find some way to preserve words, yes, to convey yeah. them, absolutely. Uh, what's the word that they always use for? Uh, online classes where you don't meet together. Asynchronous. Asynchronous. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. It's a, there's asynchronous communication, which, which shouldn't be underestimated. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a completely wild thing. And the world before asynchronous communication and after is pretty much not the same world in, in, in a real sense, because, well, you have all sorts of things that you couldn't have before. You couldn't have, I had a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently that was very interesting about, um, we were talking about, he was, he was, he brought up things fall apart and he, whether or not he remembered this or not actually doesn't correctly doesn't matter, but he was <laughs> saying that this, the young man in the story, you know, he's been studying with a missionary and then he goes and he hears this story being told by the witch doctor. He's like, you told a different story than last year. 
Like you told it differently. So it's not the same story. The witch doctor just shrugs. It doesn't matter. So we got into a discussion about, well, does it matter what gives a story identity? And when you start being able to, and for that matter, a person identity, and when you start being able to create these external ways of transmitting it, say with written word, I don't want to get too far afield on this, but I think it might be, I think it might be relevant. Mm -hmm. You end up with having very different ways of looking at why is this the same story? And I, and so, and I think that's important because then you have in, we say, well, it's the same story, particularly when it's written the same way, not, and I was contending that one way of looking at why is it the same story is, well, it might be the same story because you tell it the same time every year. You tell it when the young men go through their, you know, the passage of right into manhood. Does it matter if you tell it a little differently each time? No, it's still the same story because it happens at the same time. Whereas with written word, we say it's the same story because it has the same words in the same order. And so you end up with sort of this, like, it's the same person, right? Because of the communication, you have this communication that's preserved. You, you can interact with it. Well, you're, well, for one thing, your, your interaction with a person is very different. Right? You, thinking about one, these sort of asynchronous relation, these, no, I'm going to use the word asynchronous. Maybe that's a great. Maybe that's a good way. Asynchronous relationship. They're certainly asymmetric relationships. It's, I don't think you want to say asynchronous because you can have a real relationship. Oh, like, sure. Through letters. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Pen pals are asynchronous relationships. Yeah. But think about the difference between, say, the relationship I have with C.S. Lewis and the relationship that I have, to whatever degree I have one, with my great great grandfather. Those are very different. Hmm. But they're both real. Which they is are both real. But they're, I don't, I, I would not say the relationship I have with my great-great-grandfather is anything I would ever confuse with for a friendship. Mm-hmm. Now, if I say did the Day of the Dead thing that they do in Latin America and went and like left beers out on the graves, you know, at the gravesite for my great-great-grandfather and, you know, talked to his picture and things like that, that might start to transform into something else that would also look like a one-way relationship. But there's the degree of, let's say, uh, The things he's communicating to me are very minimal. It's it's profoundly invested with my imagination of him. You know, and, and maybe the stories I receive, but And it's very mediated in that the stories we know about our great great grandfather do not come from him. They are yeah, stories yeah. about him rather than stories from, from him. From him, yes. Which you become friends, at least the normal ordinary way of being friends with someone is to hear stories from them. From, instead of about. uh, Instead of about. And you could know all sorts of things about someone without being their friend, without feeling like you're their friend at all. Which is, so... Although I do think that knowing stories about someone can be sort of a a a pathway. A pathway to it, certainly. Yeah, well, now it just, it just makes me think about the, it makes me think about, so so what is it that we're preserving when we preserve someone's writings? That's a, or sayings, you know, it could be someone, things that are written down. So to, again, to go back to the gospels, Christ didn't write them down, but we read them. We read things that he said. And so, well, okay, let me, did, did I bring up John Verveke and his, his like model of a reciprocal modeling of another person? Mm-hmm. So, so part of what's going on there is that I think when you, with the sort of the great, great grandfather, your relationship with that person is a relationship to a narrative in some sense. I don't know if you would agree with that, but like I have ideas about his, this, like the story of his life mm-hmm. and I have stories about him, but that, that doesn't feel in any way to me. Like I'm, I think, Oh yeah. I'm like, I'm, 
I know what it would be like to sit down and talk to him. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas when I read someone's writings that I'm really deeply immersed in, say Dante or Tolkien or Lewis or to some degree maybe Flannery O'Connor or something, there's a much greater degree of like, oh, well, like I know what they would have said in that situation. Like I can think about this problem the way that they would have. I have an idea of what they would have said about it. And so to my, it seems like sort of Vervecchio's reciprocal modeling, I've got, I think I said something like this in their last conversation, like I've got that little C.S. Lewis in my head in the way that I don't have that little great-great-grandfather in my head. Do you think that it is quantitative or qualitative in that... If I had enough stories about him? If you had enough stories about him, or is it, and it's, you know, it's not necessarily either or, but... Are stories from someone, do they really facilitate getting to know that person faster? Like, it's it's more potent, it reveals more about them if it's directly from them? Or is it just that if you get to know someone in that way, you're likely to get more from them? I think my first response would be actually that the, the fastest way to know someone is to have both, is a mixture of stories from them and about them. Uh-huh. I think about when I've talked to someone a long time and then I go and hear some, you know, of someone that knows them talking about them. All of a sudden it informs all this stuff and vice versa. If I've mm, heard a bunch of yes. stuff from someone and then I go and I talk to them, there's this sort of – and this and, and I think I get the same thing too with, with writers that I'm really – I know a lot about. It's like, well, you know, you know next to nothing about them when you've read their, just their biography and oftentimes there's a lot to be gained if you've known nothing about their lives. And so it's like – it feels like – Whichever one I know the least about, to some degree, is going to be the most informative to understanding them. Hmm. When I, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's, I think that there's both of them there. And well, that's interesting. Then when I think about the Gospels, and it's like, well, what, it, what are the the Gospels aren't just sayings that Christ, you know, that Christ's followers recorded of his, and it's also not just what he did. It's him speaking and then him doing and then him speaking and then him doing. Yeah. And so there's this back and forth, and it's well, you said that. What does that mean? Which to all of this to my mind, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to simplify it in this way. What I think, and I, I'm starting to come to this idea of friend, relationship broadly, and maybe there's a special way of de- defining this for friendship is, is to, is to recognize the someone's logos. To me, that's a that that seems really insightful. To the pattern you 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 can recognize the pattern of their existence. And the more that you can recognize that, the deeper your relationship is with them in both a explanatory and maybe in an anticipatory way as well. You, when, so what, what do I mean by, okay, so what do I mean by that? When someone I, I don't know does something, I don't know what it means. When someone, someone I know really well, like we're sitting here and talking and you do something, you, some particular body language, and I can tell very quickly how much you're tracking with me and how much you're not, right? And I know what it means when you laugh at me when I say something and I know... So, so, and then when you speak to me, there's also this long history of what we've said. And so you can say a lot more with a lot less. Mm-hmm. And I think those, both of those things indicate the, let's say the depth or the reality of our relationship. And, and it's not, and not, and so what, what I'm trying, why, the reason that I'm saying it's the, you know, the pattern of your existence is it's not like I know facts about you. And like, this is obvious, Right. The facts about you don't don't let me understand what those things mean. But if there's a t- 
well, I know what your attention means. And then there's a degree of your communication is meaningful. I think, I think there's sort of a tribute. You could, you could make this sort of ad absurdum. It's like, if I don't know you at all, and I don't know what you're, the language you're speaking or any of these things, then all of that communication is meaningless. So when we're talking about communication and relationship, I'd say one of the first things you have to have, there has to be some basic relationship before you can even communicate, which is a weird, a weird thing. There has to be some sort of commonality, right? You have to be able to relate to that person. Well, you either have to be in the same place as them or with some sort of technology that lets you communicate across distances using some sort of common language, even if it's not verbal language. Well, that is interesting. Okay, so then, yeah, because then I'm thinking of you know translated dead authors, right? So I don't, I don't speak, I didn't speak the same language as them. But you could say take that to a higher level and say, and say, no, I didn't speak early Renaissance Italian, but boy, do I hear what Dante is saying. Like I really understand what he's saying. But even there, that same thing is happening. You you go back to the you reread the Commedia a bunch of times, and you start to realize, wow, consciously or unconsciously, he's communicating a huge amount in this you know this one line here. Because I know such a big piece of his mind, such a large part of his mind. And so there's, well, there, maybe I'm, maybe I'm conflating relating to someone and having a relationship with them. Do you think that that's what I'm doing? I don't think they're totally distinct. Right. I would say, but relationship is a subset. And I am willing at this point to say there is such a thing as a one way relationship. So I wouldn't say that just because Dante doesn't have a relationship to you that you don't have yeah. a relationship to him yeah. in that sort of personal relationship. Personal meeting. relationship where I've, where I, I have real insight into who he is or was and, and like there's meaningful. Well, that's one of the interesting things too, is that the dialogue then becomes internal, completely internal. Any dialogue that I have with an author is internal, which is really interesting within all those one relationships, way relationships is an inherently so, okay, well then let me present let me present another possible thing to understand about one-way relationships, which is that the possibility of self-deception is much greater. Because you don't it's never corrected it's by never the other cor- person. Well, what is interesting is that the degree that that connection can exist, right? Cuz I mean, you've I know you've had the experience of Wait, connection or correction? Correction. Correction. Correction can exist. I know you've had the experience of reading an author and thinking, "Oh, wow, I was so wrong about this." But you don't, what you don't have is the possibility of <laughs> you reading their book, you're reading what they said, thinking, oh my goodness, I was so wrong about that. And then them slapping you in the face and saying, no, you're still misinterpreting but it. But it's not responsive correction. It's not responsive correction, which as a really funny side note, uh, I, was, I was talking with one of the Labrie leaders, the one up in Massachusetts, he was saying that I was asking him about, you know, we we're kind of discussing writing versus talking and relationships and all of this and and he was explaining why he found the ministry of talking with people in person, you know, one-on-one, which isn't very scalable, so meaningful is because <laughs> he said he met someone at one point who had read one of his books and came up to him and said, your book was so life-changing. Thank you for making me realize X. And he looked at me and said, and X is the exact opposite of what that book had meant. <laughs> and he's like, and that's when I realized, Ouch. like, books have a real... There, there's a real limitation to them exactly for that. There's no responsive correction. And so I think that's probably the other one of the other, besides the fact that we have an obligation to love and like an act in charity towards people who are around us and to fill our lives with these one-way relationships and not these like embodied reciprocal relationships, which is to say the people around us. One is limited attention and resources on our part. 
And so we're giving away attention. We're giving away our energy and our time in ways that we shouldn't. But another one is that lack of reciprocal correction, which you, which leads to, you know, can, can lead to all sorts of, you know, moral solipsism and just delusion, frankly, because... And you get into problems of confirmation bias. And Absolutely. You get to thinking about it one way and you don't see the, you know, the things that contradict yes, it at some point. Yeah, yeah. And I think we should also say, too, that correction sounds negative, at least in our context, but it's, <laughs> no, it's yeah. not necessarily, you know, when we talk with each other, we ask each other to clarify things. And, yes. yeah. uh, you know, sometimes I push back against something you said and then find out that you didn't actually mean to say what I thought you said. <laughs> well, for, okay. So, so for that matter, and to go back to, you know, to go back to marriage as, to, as sort of maybe the, maybe the most intense form of reciprocal embodied relationships, you know, one of the most inf- intense forms a primary way in which you resolve conflict in a marriage relationship is to just figure out what the other person thought you said. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, it's in that sense, it's so simple. It's say back to me what you heard me say. Okay. Wow. No, that's not what I said at all. And then, it, you know, and then it becomes the act on, on the other, you know, there's this, I'm forgiving you for misunderstanding me. You're having the humility to believe that that's really, you know, not what I meant, which then, but so okay, but I want to. I, I, I think that's really interesting. I want to come back then to how we started this, which is about about our relationship with Christ and what and to God and why that isn't and how that's different from all these other relationships. And so, do you do you think in what way do do you do you think we have or do we not have reciprocal correction in that relationship? Or, yeah, yeah, that's how I'd phrase it. Well, uh, first, it's not reciprocal. Right, thank you. <laughs> yes. Do we receive that correction, right? Is, is, how, how do we have externalized, well, externalized correction then? I'll put it, I'll make it in, rather than reciprocal, right? Because it's not, we're not correcting Christ, but <laughs> God forbid. Um, does that make sense? It's not just internal, right? Because when I'm having this internal right. dialogue with an author... Again, you know, as we just said, there's this all this possibility for these biases and, and such to come in and confirmation bias and, and just my own limitedness. He can't take me by the shoulders and shake me and say, no, you, you're not getting it. How does that come into our relationship with Christ? Because, you know, how, I, I could pick up the Bible, you know, I can pick up Christ, the writings recording Christ's life on this earth and read them and then... I'd be interested in what you have to say. I'm having something really interesting come to me too, but I kind of want to hear what you say and see if they line up before. Well, okay. First of all, <laughs> scripture is different than any other writing that we have. Okay. And so it's active, I think, in a way that other writings are not. You know, the word of God is living and active as a two yes, sword. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. I think that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, sanctifying us and applying the word to us. So how does, okay, well, well, can we dig into that? And how do you, how do you see, how do you see the Holy Spirit? Like, because the Holy Spirit isn't the same thing as conscience, right? I mean, is it, is it operating in, is it a, is it a sort of, let's say a grace operating in that internal dialogue? Is that like, is that how you see that happening? And there's no short question. I'm just, I just want to know, like, sort of like nuts and bolts, 
You you you're you're engaging oh. with this. Yeah. Um. It seems to me like it varies by person, so, and and yeah, okay. I think that it can. It's not the same as conscience, obviously, but I think that the spirit can speak through your conscience, right? And right. Regularly does. Right. Um. Some people have the experience of hearing God speak directly to them as something apart from conscience. I've never had that. I don't know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think God speaks through other people as well. Yeah. So the, so the right. Okay. So you're, you're kind of, you're, I think you're headed in the direction. My, Cause my first thought was the Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. Christ shines in 10,000 places. Lovely in eyes and lovely in limbs, not his to the father through the features of men's faces. And that. I thought that was more about natural revelation. But I don't know. Well, it's not because that actually, so just in terms of the poet, the, what is it? The Kingfisher's Catch Fire. It's the second, uh-huh. it's the second stanza of Kingfisher's Catch Fire. And he, and he goes through natural revelation. He says, but in the first stanza, but the second stanza says, I say more, the just man, uh, what does it say? The I just say, man, justice. Says, keeps grace. That keeps all his goings, graces and, and goes on. And the grace modifies things in a weird way because that's how he wrote. But I think he's, he's saying, there's natural revelation, and then there's this other thing, which is a just man acting justly, and particularly the Catholic idea of grace as being something that completes nature versus healing it. So I think well, he's... that's not Catholic specifically. Well, but... I, I would say that Western then. Okay. It's West, it is, it is, there are, there are, there's discussion with the different, the, the Thomistic idea of grace as against the idea of grace as it's elaborated on in Eastern traditions. So anyway, we don't that's, have to, we don't have to, we yeah, don't have to, we don't that, have to, the only different. reason that it's, the only reason it's relevant is that the only reason it's relevant is that I'm, I'm starting, I'm starting to try to circle around this. It seems to me that, that, that what happens is in our relationship with Christ, it's actually, I'm, I'm, I'm coming basically to the exact opposite of my initial position. You're probably going to correct me on this somewhat, but it's not so much that it's a, it's a one way relationship with Christ, but now Every relationship has the potential to be that relation, that two-way reciprocal relationship with Christ. And as soon as I say that, I think, well, yeah, of course, he says that. He says, you know, at the end, you will say, I will say to you, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Lord, when did we see you? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, every time you did that to the least of these. So he's at least saying in terms of the the charity exchanged between two people in a reciprocal relationship, he's saying you can do that. Who who do I do that to? I don't see you walking around on you know in your flesh on this earth, Christ. You do it when you do it to the poor. Mm-hmm. So that actually, and that I think gets into an even broader way in which we have we get that correction. Yes. Every time we bump up against how the world works, yes, we experience yes. the consequences yes. of something. Okay. Okay. Yes. That. You know that's a course correction for us. Excellent. Be. Okay, so uh, then, okay, so then, so then, take <laughs> take what I said earlier, which is my a way that I find really helpful of conceiving of a relationship with someone is a an understanding of their logos, and then you think about well, what is the world? It is it is the created manifestation of the, the logos. logos, right? And so then you say, well, how would I know what Christ is like? It's like, well, here's creation, like we're in it. And, mm-hmm. and w- when you're bumping up against a reality and it's the same way, like you're walking around a room with someone and you're bumping into them in some sense, uh, you, there's, there are edges to it. And you're like, well, where did those edges come from? 
Mm-hmm. They they came from the one who created it, and now you know you're full into natural natural revelation and natural law. I think in a really great way, and so this is sort of the well. Okay, so now now, what do you think about this? Do you think that that phenomenon is related to the the vision that the church has had for pretty much all of history that the the non Christian philosophers were starting to draw near Christ because of their clear eyed view of the world. The, this sort of taking up of Plato and Aristotle and these other thinkers and saying, there's something relevant here. They're real, like, we shouldn't ignore this. Is it that same thing? Is it, is that what you're talking about? Yes. The, the, the world didn't work differently, differently for yeah. them. Nature didn't operate differently for them. And they didn't have the fullness of revelation. And so they only got so far, but, it's not like it's not like the walls to you know to use your analogy of the room it's not like the walls of nature were in a different place for them yes so okay well all right then going back to what we were saying earlier I was we were talking about earlier about say stories from and stories about can can we make some comparison then between natural revelation and the stories about Christ hmm and special revelation being the stories from Christ. Th- that, that seems like a pretty tight fit to me. Or at least maybe there's some, uh, there's some value I have, there. I have two hesitations. Okay. <laughs> uh, complications on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I don't want to say that natural revelation isn't a story from God. Because right. it is communication from God still. It's not it, just a about him although i think that you're right that we do in some ways experience it more like that and then on the special revelation side there are there are plenty of places in the bible where it's not presented as god speaking directly yeah so it's it's inspired but it's the you know i'm not I, i know almost nothing about the nuances of this doctrine, but the human author doesn't <laughs> disappear. Yes. So, so that you have, <laughs> <tread carefully>. you, <laughs> have <laughs> you have both actors on both sides of that. Yeah. Well, okay. I see that. I see that. So, oh, what's so hard though is like, because then you do have right, the divine inspiration of the writers and, and, and uh, of scripture. Maybe, maybe another way to look at it would be something more like, and I don't want to go too far and push this too far, but sort of an inside outside. This is sort of, which, because I think of like, say, seeing my friend or my child or my wife act and then asking them to explain it. And those are different things. Mm-hmm. And again, there, there seems to be some sort of not dichotomy, but sort of polarity to that. Of like stories from and stories about mm-hmm. watching and and listening and having explained and natural revelation and special revelation. I'm trying to sure. I mean, we experience that even in in regular narratives. That there's that sliding scale between stories about and stories from. So you can have a story that is purely about where you have you know nothing about the internal workings of the person that the story is about. They don't say anything. Yeah. It's just the outside perspective. 
And you can have a story that is about someone but reveals much more about what's going on inside them yes. without it becoming yes. fully a story from. So, yeah, so the, the position that I'm trying to put forward is it seems that the experience of, of, like, of, of the ancient wise who didn't have special revelation looking at the world was something like that first kind of story that you just described, the one in which you don't get any insight into what's going on in the people's head. You mm-hmm. see the things happening, mm-hmm. but no one has spoken yet and said, this is why it is. I think, I, what I, all, yeah, all, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting comparison. Um, I'd be curious to know what much wiser and more knowledgeable people than I have Certainly. to say about it. It's, it seems like something someone would have said something about <laughs> yeah. at some point. What all I'm, well, and the reason all this excites me, and I just, I want to try to lay some basic distinctions down for myself so I can see this, is because it, it seems to be driving at something like our friendship with Christ, all, all everything has the possibility to be part of our friendship with Christ, mm-hmm. which is, I've never thought about it in those terms, which is kind of silly when I articulate it that way, but yeah, I, that's a really compelling idea to me. And maybe it's only because we've spent all this time walking through what does it mean? You know, what are we talking about when we're talking about becoming friends with someone or developing a relationship with someone? So I've got a little bit maybe higher resolution there in terms of what that means. Mm-hmm. And so then I can look and then looking at my own life and saying, well, it's not just about like being friends with Christ because I've, I've heard that in terms that are just, you know, beyond obnoxious, but, but, but I also cannot deny absolutely that our Lord said specifically that, that that's what's supposed to be true, that we're supposed to be his friends. And so, well, what does that mean? And all of it, and so to come at it from this direction seems to me to be, create the possibility. Well, it also, it also starts to seem to hint at some really good ways of starting to look at, you know, this, this, pattern between the um the let's say the the holy and the profane right that you you ha- you have to have times in your life in which you are let's say more directly focused on god and times when you're less directly focused on god right you you have times of adoration and worship and you have times of caring for family or you're with friends there's times where you're caring for your bodily needs there's times where you're praying and there and a an appropriate Christian life is one that's constantly going back and forth between those, right? You're taking care of your station of life. You're engaging in, in worship. In your explicit attention. In your explicit attention. Absolutely. And in the same way that, say, it, or in an analogous way to say, I, my relationship with my wife, and I, and I think about this because it's, she's who I live with and with my children, I move in and out of, it, I'm explicitly talking to you and giving you my attention now we're working on a common task together. Now we're working separately for the peace of the household. And so you have this sort of, but at no point is it like I'm acting outside of that relationship with her. Mm-hmm. Not like, cause she's in the other room taking care of our baby and I'm doing something out in the front of the house. It's not like we cease to have that relationship and that has the possibility of enriching that relationship. All of it does. That seems to me to be a really interesting analog to sort of the way in which and I use I use profane or secular in the sense in the sense of it not being overtly overtly sacred, not in the sense of it not being connected to God, mm-hmm. right? It is not like a, and, and you have to set up those boundaries. Like there's some things that you aren't going to do when you're like praying solemnly, right? Like 
you have to eat at some point and you can't pray vocally while you're eating. You know, there's, there's just like certain constraints on our lives. And like, also, you know, Elliot had a point when T.S. Elliot had a point when he said, man cannot bear too much reality, right? Could, should I, should I have this sort of as near as, as possible unmediated awareness of God at all times? I should. Can I get, can I just say, well, I should do that. And then just now I'm doing that. Of course not. And then and you, we get tired of these things. And it's, well, how do we, how do we sort of bring all that other stuff into the orbit of my relationship to Christ to, to under, to, to knowing better the word, the divine logos. And, and so I would say that I, this is, this is very helpful to me in sort of starting to conceptualize, well, how am I supposed to walk through that, that sort of changing, changing attention? Mm-hmm. The, you know, as a Catholic, I go to mass, my eyes are looking at the altar, right? I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly focused on, you know, this Eucharistic celebration. And then I leave and my kids are being, you know, need my attention. Well, how do I, you know, I have to focus on the road as I'm driving home. How do I negotiate that? Is it, is it wrong of me to step down from that sort of attention at some point mm-hmm. and to be, and to be cutting down a tree, you know? And, and I don't think so. I think, I mean, looking back at monastic life, you know, the monastic tradition in, in Christianity, even there, you know, the Benedictines, it's Orient Labore. And it's not merely prayer and labor because you have to do something. Some of the, You have to like provide for your needs. It's no, like it, it's always been seen that there's, that you're moving back and forth between those two. So. Well, there were some orders that wouldn't have. They did their best to not move back. They did their them. best. Sure. And, and then you, and you also have saints, right? Like uh, St. Simon, Simeon the Stylite, who like was on a pillar for however many years and didn't. And it's like, and in that case, I think you look at the broader church body, right? And say, all of this is happening. Because someone also has to give birth to Simon the Stylite, St. Simon the Stylite. Someone has to give birth to the the desculcated Carmelite nuns, cloister desculcated Carmelite nuns, right? <laughs> Someone, someone's got to be their mother and father. And so it's like, if the church is going to persist, there has to be this, you know, maybe less so in some individual persons, but, but even then there, you know, the, the idea has always been that, that they're praying for all the other people. And so it's not like, you know, here I am just looking at, at, at God in my prayer and nothing, and, you know, and, and I've just lost all awareness of everything else. They give their attention to the whole church body, even though they've gone out to the desert to pray or lock, the, you know, masonry themselves into the side of a church building. <laughs> it's like, they're there for everyone, you know? And, and so I don't know, that's fascinating. And then, and then thinking about, you know, the church as the body of Christ, you know, saying, well, how do I, how do I have that reciprocal? How do I have that? I keep saying that. How do I have that, that form of correction? How do I receive? How do I not have an, just an internal dialogue with Christ? Right. It's, it's those other people who are also pursuing unity with the word that then become, I think their Hopkins words are really apt. Right. And, and ideally, right. This conversation would be part of that too. Right. We're bumping up against reality when we're talking to each other mm-hmm. and hopefully acting that out in some way. And, and, and so, and, and that's really encouraging. This should be in as much as it's something about our relationship and our friendship. It also should be your friendship with Christ and my friendship with Christ. And so one, one last point that I want to bring out there several times during this conversation, I've thought about, uh, 
what C.S. Lewis had to say when Charles Williams died and how they lost. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He lost, you know, Tolkien in Will, the, the part of Tolkien that Williams brought out. Mm-hmm. Besides Williams, yeah. and so yeah, if you if you think about all of your life as potentially part of a friendship with God, yes, then yes, every yes. part of it can be bringing out that part of you that God brings out that that's yeah that's that, you know conforms. More and more to him. Yes. Oh, that, I mean, that, that's, that's really remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, I think about, you know, seeing... So I had a friend, one of our very, very tight group of friends moved back to the near area for a little while. And seeing what he brings out of our other friends. Mm-hmm. And you think, okay, if he brings that out, like, that should always be what God is doing in me to these other, for these other people. They should look at me and they should see Christ walking into the room. And me looking at him and like, I become the kind of person that Christ is, that I am when I'm, when I'm next to Christ. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. Well, that's a good place to end this, this episode. So thank you for your time and helping me cultivate my relationship both with you and with Christ. (laughs) (laughs) To the, whoever's listening, thank you for your attention and try to have some other relationships besides us because (laughs) you need them for Reciprocal correction. But we'll see you next time.